following podcast is produced by attorneys licensed to practice law in Indiana. Laws vary state by state, so if you have a legal question, contact a qualified attorney in your area. The information contained in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Welcome to the Indy Law Pod, Potpourri Edition. My name is Matt Bigler, former deputy prosecutor and current personal injury attorney at Leydendorf Law. Today we're going to talk about some various issues and joining me once again, my friend and criminal law attorney in Indianapolis, Mark Lopez of the Mark Lopez Law Firm. What's going on, man? Dude, thanks for having me again, Matt. I've been really enjoying doing these with you, and I'm excited about today. You and I were talking the other day about what we wanted to discuss uh, this week, and we decided to do, on your suggestion, just a potpourri edition of kind of topical things that are happening. Uh, the topics we're going to talk about today the pothole problem in Indianapolis, if you know, a lot of people are losing tires and getting damage to their cars, and they want to make a claim with the city or with the state for the repair bill. Uh, we wanted to talk about the case of the state versus Kevin Watkins. It's an Indianapolis bail bondsman who's on trial right now for murder of uh, two teenage boys in Indianapolis, apparently with a hatchet where he buried them out in the field somewhere. And um, we're recording this Friday around noon on March 2nd. And the case should be wrapping up and going to the jury uh, soon. And we'll talk about some developments in that case. Uh, we also wanted to talk about some developments in the Manuel Orego Zavala case. That's the Super Bowl Sunday crash where an Indiana or an Indianapolis Colts football player Edwin Jackson and his Uber driver Jeffrey Monroe were killed on the interstate. And there has been some interesting developments there. So for our first topic, the pothole problem in Indianapolis. What's your commute like when you drive in with the potholes? I'm mostly on the expressway, 465 and I-65, and there are definite segments where I have to be in certain lanes. Otherwise, my car is going to get jostled. So it's not that bad. But my employees, every morning they come here, one of the employees has recommended calling College Street, College Trail, which makes me hilarious, laugh inside. But you live in Broderpool, though. Yeah, College Avenue is terrible. Uh few weeks ago, my friend, uh, my car died and my friend was driving me to a car lot to just go car shopping. We didn't make it a mile of College Avenue. Um, he hit a giant pothole there by the bridge in Broad Ripple and blew a tire. I mean, and this is, and you go and you see lines of hubcaps. I mean, the, the roads are, in spots are just abysmal. And, you know, your people are driving on the shoulder. It's just terrible. But the question that a lot of people get is, what do I do when I lose a tire you know, damage a wheel, you know, break a control arm, struts, whatever in their car, is the state liable for paying that? Um, is this something you've ever, ever had to deal with? You know, in my former life, it is, but this is the question I want to ask you. What is, you keep seeing on the news the importance of filing a tort claim with the city. What is even a tort claim? Well, a tort claim is is like any claim, If you're whether you're suing a a person for negligence or property damage or whatever, or a responsibility for something, you're filing a tort claim. Now, specifically to a government entity, it's covered by the Indiana Tort Claim Act. So it's not like a tort claim you'd make, like a tort suit or uh, some kind of something you'd file against another person. It's a specific tort claim notice you have to file. If you're making a claim against the state, meaning like the state proper, the, the Department of Transportation did something or a state trooper, a particular person with the state, you have 270 days to make a claim. If it's a government subdivision like a city, I, uh, Indiana, the city of Indianapolis, Indigo Bus Transit, 
if there's some governmental subdivision like that, you have 180 days to make the claim. If you don't make your claim and there's a specific form they have and a statute to follow, if you don't make your claim in that time, it's kind of like a mini statute of limitations. If you don't make notice in that time, the claim's barred forever. There are some minor exceptions, like if you're inca incapacitated, it's for 180 days after your incapacitation. But you know, for the most part, if you don't make notice in that time, it goes away forever. Matt, who is responsible for the roads inside the city of Indianapolis? Is it in Department of Transportation, or is it the city? It depends. It depends what the road is. Um, the NDOT, Indiana Department of Transportation, is responsible for state highways. Um, so they would be, or state-administered highways, like uh, 465 is an interstate. To the best of my knowledge, that's, that's repaired by NDOT. I, I don't know if, for example, Meridian Street, where it's also US 31, yeah. I, I don't know how that counts. I'm sure there's some split somewhere. But city streets are just done by the city, you know, city of Indianapolis highway department, or, you know, but uh, the highways, like state highways, interstates, that's... Uh, paved by the the state if you're going to cover your if you want to cover yourself probably best to notice both of them state and city i would i mean if unless you know unless you know i would notice both because you you do want to be certain i don't know if that you if you called in dot or if you called the city works department highway works department they, they might tell you and and that might be sufficient um i would always cover my bases i mean i have i have cases in my personal injury practice where we'll notice you know, a, a government, governmental entity, even if we don't know that they're, at, you know, if we're not 100% sure they're involved, well, we think there's a possibility we're going to notice them because if you don't send the notice, you're sunk. But yeah, so you, you find out who the responsible entity is and you file that report. And from the state website, how they make it look is that it's just that easy. And hardly anybody gets paid for these kind of claims. I don't know what the exact rule for property damage is because it's very hard to get a, an attorney involved in a property damage case like that. Why is that? Why aren't attorneys busting down doors to help people get their car repaired? Mostly because it's not cost effective for the client. If your only problem is a blown tire, that might be, you know, 50, 80, 100, 150 bucks for a, a blown tire, which isn't nothing. But if you're going to pay an attorney on an hourly basis to fight this with the state, even if it's only a couple hours of an attorney writing up a, a demand, it's still going to be a couple hundred bucks. I mean, even a, even a, a value, inexpensive attorney is going to be you know $100 an hour. So it doesn't make sense for the client to spend $200 to try to get $100. Absolutely. Um, they could just pay the $100 out of their pocket anyway and be good. Um, on the flip side, you know, if you're doing it like a contingency that you know, I'll get a, a third of whatever your uh, recovery is, it's not worth it for really one, the client for a damage of a hundred dollars or $150. And it's not really worth it for the attorney to spend a couple hours on the best case scenario to get paid 50 bucks. And you don't have the money. The person that filed the claim does not have the money to actually repair or replace because part of that is going to the. Exactly. And so it, it doesn't, from a matter of economics, it doesn't make a lot of sense. The system stinks to an extent. The state is doing a favor because they don't have to let themselves be sued. And they had that historically, they have, you can't sue the king, you can't sue the sovereign. Yeah. But they put a lot of barriers to get there. Where I see the Tort Claim Act more is with injury cases. 
Yeah, so Matt, one more thing I've been reading about the potholes is the state, even though, you know, we've already talked about they may not be paying it anyways, but they're definitely not going to pay it unless somebody has reported the pothole as existing. Yeah, and I, I they always say that the way they value it, I think it was uh, Denise Robinson, my old boss, is working for the Attorney General's office now. She was interviewed the other day for a news story, um, and she said their policy for looking at a claim is, and that's the state, Not I don't know what the city's process is, but for the state, they will see if it's been reported, see if they've had a reasonable time to address it, and has the pothole changed since it was, since it was reported. And I think why that's important is they don't want a a minor pothole that was reported might be down the list. You know, they're they're gonna it's all triage. You know, if there's a crater somewhere, ideally they should be addressing it first. Uh, but there's a a small pothole somewhere, it's down the list, and it never gets it never gets reported that it's you know quintupled in size. So they don't if they don't know that it's now a giant pothole, they're not going to take responsibility for it. It needs to be reported, I guess, daily because these things are just growing exponentially. For their purposes, they're going to say it has to be reported. Um, it has to have a reasonable time. If it's not, if it's been rainy or snowy and they're not able to get out, they're too cold, you know, to put down the right kind of mix yeah. to fix it. They won't pay for. It. They would say it's not our responsibility. That makes some sense. That if I report a pothole at 10 a.m. And somebody blows a tire at 10:15. If they didn't know about it, if they didn't have notice of a, a defect, and they didn't have a chance to fix it, that's fair. The thing is, is that they're the ones making these decisions. They're saying whether they had a reasonable time to fix it. And if you want to challenge it, you're going to have to file a lawsuit. And that goes back to the original problem of it's hard to afford it. Well, the filing fee for a lawsuit is how much right now? $180. Even in small claims, if it's even a little bit cheaper, it's not going to be much cheaper. And then to get some of these tires fixed, it's going to be... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're spe- I mean, just on principle. And there's somebody out there who's going to be, going to have the, the gumption to do it uh, and demand a jury trial and have the state explain themselves. But it's going to cost them money. I mean, it's just, you could go through that whole process. You could end up spending, you know, on the cheap side, 200 bucks. You're going to bring an attorney in, involved, which I would always recommend if you're filing suit somewhere, I mean, you can end up spending thousands of dollars for retired. I, I, I think my perception, honestly, is that they're just trying to wait people out. They're making it expensive for them to do it. And, you know, they deny you long enough and you just say, you know, to hell with it. You know, no, delay, deny, defend, right? That's it. That's it. But we're going to try to put some notes on this with some forms. Should be some notes in the description on the SoundCloud website, soundcloud.com forward slash Indie Law Pod, that will have the link to the PDF for the uh, Indiana Tort Claims Notice. There is a specific form you have to follow. It doesn't have to be on that state form, but that's a good way to make sure you get everything uh, included. And if you've had a bro- uh, flat tire, broken wheel, broken struts, suspension, good luck to you. It's going to be a tough road. Um, but some people, some people will get paid, and maybe this will make changes to the tort claims notice. I hope so. Um, our next topic we wanted to talk about is an update on this Kevin Watkins uh, case. Like I said in the open, uh, Kevin Watkins is an Indianapolis bail bondsman who was charged with the Chris- Christmas Eve double murder of two uh, teenage boys. His trial started this week, and most notably in the opening statement, the defense attorney claimed that his client was going to make a defense of self-defense that somehow or the other this defendant killed these two boys I, from their news reports following the trial on the news uh, apparently with a hatchet and then dismembered 
or I don't know if he dismembered the bodies. I know he buried them in different places. I think they were one in Shelby County, one like at a small lake here in Indianapolis. They uh, found you know blood in the dumpster outside his business. It was it was graphic. But making a claim of self defense, the news reports this morning made it sound like they were unsure whether he was going to testify. Doesn't he have to if he's making a claim of self defense or have some some extrinsic testimony that's so clear that he would have been acting in a state of fear? Yeah, you have. So you don't. You, the case law is you don't have to testify in your own defense in order to make a self defense claim. But for practical purposes, how is he going to do it? Because the only people that are were with him are deceased. So it'd be different if he had a female at the home saying, we heard strange banging on the door and we saw these young men faces outside and then the defendant went outside, but there's no witness like that that I know of. I mean, I have not, neither Matt or I have watched the entire trial, but this is something of a rather a big deal here in Indianapolis and to try to make a self-defense claim without testifying in this situation, it seems impossible. And, you know, just because an attorney argues self-defense in opening does not mean that the jury gets instructed on self-defense unless the judge finds there's at least a scintilla of evidence. Let's say that's done as a tactic, that you raise self-defense in opening with no intent of actually presenting that evidence later. And I've had attorneys do this where they've they've said things, try, I guess, to plant a seed in the jury's mind, yeah. but they don't actually follow through with it. I hated it as a, a prosecutor or as a even a civil attorney, what do you think about doing that? Well, number one, an attorney is not in charge of whether or not his client testifies. So there's certain rights that a defendant has, you know, whether to plead guilty, whether to do a trial, and then also whether to testify. So I, as a defense attorney, I've had cases where the defendant has said, hey, I'm going to testify. Here's what I'm going to testify to. And then as a trial goes on, uh, the defense attorney gets cold feet, or the defense attorney, the defense attorney, or maybe the client, more likely, I don't want to testify anymore. Um, strategies can change, and you and I both know, Matt, a trial is almost like a living organism, and everybody has an idea of how it's going to end, but like there's some strange turns. So ethically, you're not supposed to plant a seed without the intention of watering that seed and nurturing that soil, but I would hesitate to say, you know, I really respect the defense bar here in Indiana. I would never say an attorney would never do that, but at the same time, you could very easily say, I'm going to do this, and then... <laughs> The state doesn't prove their case, or the state accidentally proves their case for you. So if you argue self-defense in opening, the state might all of a sudden start shifting into some of that and introduce evidence that you weren't expecting them to introduce. So you're not supposed to do what Matt just said, but it does happen. Yeah, and it's I mean it, I 100% agree that people strategies shift, you know, things change during trial. But I have seen it before where you know they raise something in opening, and you're like, are they testifying? And it's I don't really know yet. Wink. And it's like, you son of a bitch. Like, you know, you know exactly what you're doing. Because I think it can plant a seed. It gets the jury thinking about collateral issues that are never going to be supported by evidence or come up. With the the nature of this case, I mean, the the graphic, brutal way, killed with a hatchet, you know, to to the head. Even if these guys were killed. He's definitely brutal. I mean, how do you. It's a ballsy move, but I mean. I don't say you don't know enough about the case to say what, whether you would do it, but that's a, it seems kind of out there, doesn't it? It really does. You know, when I read about this case before the trial started, I thought this was a, a basically heat of the moment type situation. And that's not a defense, but that can be a mitigator. This defendant apparently was robbed by these boys. I don't know that for a fact. I'm not disparaging these young men, but you know, apparently he had some history with these or. Or at least his, his suspicion was that he yeah, was robbed Yeah, his suspicion. Them or, 
And so, you know, he was on heightened alert for his property. And, you know, we don't know if they did that or not. We have no idea because they're no longer with us. Um, but to argue self-defense, I mean, there has to be objectively reasonable and you have to have a subjective component for self-defense as well. Two young men dead with a hatchet, their bodies placed separate locations. I don't know. That's a hard sell. I mean, I'm very, I'm a very liberal person, very believing person. But I... it, maybe it makes some sense though that if they're not going to be able to get away from hiding the bodies, if they're not going to be able to get away from blood at his house and blood at his dumpster and his business and his truck, if, not, if they can't get away from that evidence, I mean, maybe it makes some sense to say it was. I don't use craze, but you know, it was a. Like you said, a kind of a huge, you know, passionate moment where he was just so worked up and did it, and then freaked out to try to get the jury on his side. Because if you're not gonna be able to get away from the fact that you know this guy moved the bodies, that he killed him, if if they're stuck there, maybe that's a really clever argument versus just saying, yeah, state didn't make their case because maybe you know that they could. So maybe that's the best idea. So many, so many things about this. I can't wait to talk with the attorneys involved because, you know, he moved these bodies separately, but then there was for lack of a better word, pieces of the body near his home and near his front door and it just seems like all this effort to get bodies separate them and then you didn't clean up your own front yard. So many parts of this doesn't make sense and it's really important when you do these cases. You know, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Whoever's listening to this probably has the verdict in front of them. <laughs> but, you know, number one is really important that client makes decisions such as defenses they're going to be made. And so um, the attorneys are doing a bang up job. They're doing best they can with the evidence they have. And so I'm very interested to see how this turns out. And I mean, and this is the kind of case too, where there is, even if it's a tremendous case for the state, there is risk because, you know, with criminal cases, it's not like a civil case where it's like, well, we'll do 60, 40 and the person just recovers less. It's all or nothing. And either the state's going to get them or the state's going to not. And so there's, you're charged with double murders of a 15 and 16 year old and you're whatever 50 years old or whatever he is you're going to get a life sentence sentence if you're convicted oh, even if you get the minimum sentence you're effectively getting life sentences so the defendant has very little risk so might as well just take a run at it and put the put the onus on the state to try to you know to defend their case i, I guess i have to totally agree with you on that i mean there there's you're absolutely right. I mean, a 40-year sentence to this defendant is going to be a life sentence. Yeah. And it's, per person, you can get that easily in these case, pet case. So why not? If there's even a smallest hint of a defense, which it sounds like there is a hint of a defense, it's just going to be hard for the jury to understand and accept the moving of the bodies, I think. you know. Well, but reading the tea leaves and... It's true. That's very important. Reading the tea leaves, I think, is something that is interesting with this, is any other case... All things equal. Person kills two young teenagers, you know, so 15 and 16 years old, I think, in a brutal way, hides the bodies. How many times out of 10 do you think they file uh, either life without parole or death penalty, like a capital case? Oh, man. It's going to be a lot. <laughs> I, mean... I, I would think, yeah. I would think the majority of the time is going to be a capital case. There's some reason they didn't. I don't know what it is, uh, but there's some reason that they did. I'm not sure if every murder, but a lot of murders get reviewed here for uh, whether they qualify for death penalty. And from a pure factual level, I think age of the victims, multiple victims are both death penalty qualifiers. Yeah, I believe. No, you're absolutely right. So the, 
I am curious what the reasoning was. But we'll never know. I mean, that's not going to be something that anybody's ever going to say. But there's some reason there. And I, I would love to know what I've it never was. actually thought about that. Why didn't they go after this guy harder? And, you know, he he made some weird things. He wrote a letter to a judge at one point. He made some statements. When he, I was in, I was robbed. There was so, I mean, there might be just be like, hey, exactly. You were reading tea leaves. Yeah. And like, you're absolutely right, though. Most other people, the age of these young individuals, the brutal way they were killed. This is, uh, you're absolutely right. That's an interesting point. On the flip side of that, though, um, they might be looking at it the, the practical way that we are, that if he's convicted, it's effectively a life sentence anyway. So why spend the money to do a life without parole case? Or a death penalty case, which will take 15 more years, 20 years to go through death row. Um, the the extra expense and time it takes to do a death penalty or capital case trial. If you have effectively a life without parole case. It's faster and cheaper. Yeah, just faster right? and cheaper. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I guess maybe it doesn't matter. So again, just speculating here, it's just, I think it's an interesting thing to think about. Look at this. Former Deputy Prosecutor Matt Bigler. Shining a light into a defense in a very educated, interesting light as well. That's that's very interesting. Yeah, you flatter me, sir. Um, so, moving on to our next topic is the update on the Manuel Orego Zavala case. Mark, tell me what's happened recently in that case. Well, uh, an, a, the original attorney is still on the case, but a new attorney has actually filed his appearance as well. And so that's interesting and Anybody that has watched The People vs. O.J. Simpson can kind of get the dynamics of how attorneys work together. That's not the, that's the minor issue. The big, big thing that I saw, and I'd love to know your opinion on this, you know, you having done the exact type prosecution that's going on, but the original attorney filed a motion to suppress all statements made by Zavala based on a Miranda violation. And Miranda is what you know from the TV shows of you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you, so on and so forth. Um, sorry, go so, ahead. But you know, typically with a normal DUI officer sees someone driving intoxicated, they're swerving the line. There's no need to read Miranda warnings. There's no reason to tell them they have the right to an attorney. Officers are allowed to ask questions. There is case law if there is an accident and then the officer notices signs of intoxication. The officer is supposed to read Miranda because... Indiana has some laws where you can't just leave the scene of an accident, so you're in this quasi-custody. Well, let's stop right there. When when is Miranda invoked generally? What's the rule? When there is an interrogation of a person and that person is in custody. It becomes a somewhat unique circumstance with traffic cases because you are stopped at a traffic stop or a crash scene or anything. As anybody that's tried to leave the scene of traffic, <laughs> yes, you are. You have to yeah, stop. You, you are, your freedom to move is restricted. And you are being questioned, but that's not a violation. Uh, being at a DUI checkpoint, it's not a violation. It's not a violation. Um, that case just came, unequivocally came down. You're not in custody of DUI. All the lights, officer knocking at your door, and the Indiana Supreme Court said, no, you are not in custody. And so I always kind of look at this as a legal fiction. <laughs> like, you, you're stopped, you have to comply. If you don't, it's fleeing a law enforcement officer as a felony. But um, just the way it is, we are allowed to stop. Society decided officers are allowed to stop individuals for traffic violations, and basically, it's not you're not it's not a Miranda situation. You're but, not in custody. But even if an officer rolls up on it, they roll up on a crash, whether it's called in or they just you know see one, they're gonna go to the driver and say, "Hey, are you okay?" Oh yeah. And what happened? And they're not in custody. I mean, they're not in custody in that you're not free to leave because you were suspecting you of anything. 
and they are being asked questions that could be potentially incriminating, but that's not going to, I don't think that's going to trigger a Miranda violation. The leaving the scene aspect complicates this case, right? Oh yeah. Uh, and I don't know how far down the highway he was, but I guess one of the witnesses described as an Hispanic male, which maybe that leans more to the officer of maybe he's walking away cause he's hurt and confused versus committing a crime. And then the, how are you certain or more certain that this guy's the driver? Well, he's walking on the interstate. He's not walking on. It's not like you a know, com- neighborhood mass community. Ass, here, you know? yeah. But he definitely is uh, from the probable cause affidavit. I mean, I see the attorney's point where it says the officer says he had his lights on and ordered him to stop. I mean, that's a command to restrict your travel. Yeah. Maybe it's different on the interstate. I don't know. I don't know how this is going to shake out. And like, I think this is a motion that was going to have to be made by any competent attorney. And then, you know, I just think that the misstep is it's so premature. And why um, do you think it's premature? There's not not all states allow depositions for criminal cases. Indiana is a state that allows depositions of criminal cases, and it's very easy to accomplish a deposition in a criminal case. And so I think the preferred way of doing this is to talk with the officers, talk with anybody present, basically to lock in their testimony. And there's ways you can do that, and it's any competent criminal defense attorney in this state can do that. We're not in Georgia where there are no depositions or other states literally have no depositions. I have attorneys call me all the time. You have no idea how lucky you are, Mark Lopez. This is insane. I don't know how you... We have depositions here. So the way that I know, I'm obviously playing Monday morning quarterback. It's not my case. It's easy to criticize, but I would have definitely locked in these statements of these officers, asked every conceivable question. And once I knew exactly what they were going to say, file a motion... No way am I going to put the detail that is in that motion, but simply I'm going to ask for a suppression of the statements, let the state figure out the angle, and then do the actual suppression hearing, follow that up with a memorandum. Right now, just in my opinion, I almost feel like you've given the state a warning shot and said, hey, here's our issue. Here's your roadmap of our what's going yeah, on. Yeah, here's our roadmap of our argument. And I'm, I'm not saying that a prosecutor would ever tell an officer how to, to testify. And I don't think that happens here in Indianapolis. But... They definitely got a preview of the argument, and they got a preview of, you know, oh, that's not what happened. This is what happened. Cause all, all serious misstep. Because all you're going on is, at this point, is what he wrote down in a report. Yes, and Presumably. Big, like, we know the reports are not... What, are the, what is the purpose of police report? To yeah. establish probable cause. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have the detail. And, you know, it's like it's like trying to find sarcasm on the on the internet. It's hard to find it in the written page. You're, oh, yeah. Good luck being sarcastic on an email. I mean, you're going to end up pissing somebody off because you're going to offend them. They don't realize you're being sarcastic. There's room for misinterpretation. Um, there's room for am- ambiguity. And so if that trooper gets brought in for a, a deposition, he can be asked, what did you mean by this? Tell me exactly what happened. Like you said, lock him into a sworn statement that they're going to have a, a lot harder time explaining after the suppression hearing. And they are explaining what they meant on a paragraph that they typed over the course of a day. Trying to explain, you know, because these guys aren't authors. They're not necessarily journalism majors. They're just writing what their observations were to get to their PC, like you said, to uh, justify an arrest. And that's that's a tough call. Now, let's say that the admissions at the scene, I, I think specifically they're trying to avoid the admission that he was driving. Yes. And, and maybe... They want to avoid that because of the subsequent statements that he made in court that he wasn't driving. So you, you, if you eliminate the admission from the scene, 
maybe you get rid of that issue at trial. But beyond that, do you think that if they if they get rid of the admission at the scene, because I don't think the truck was registered to him, and I don't think anybody saw him get out and, and driving or behind the wheel, if that admission goes away, do they have PC for the the buckle swab, the DNA test? Do they have PC for a blood draw? I mean, do they have PC going forward for the rest of the investigation? No, that's that's an amazing question, and the, the, you know, if we can eliminate the admission at the scene, why is he in jail? You're absolutely right, and it's such a serious question. It's such you know, the answer could be so determinative of so much. It just sees, it just seems like a misstep to bring and, this issue up. And we don't have the answers to all those other questions oh, no. because maybe somebody did see him behind the wheel. I, I mean, we don't. I didn't say that the PC. But and that's all Mr. Ziegler and I have is we have the yeah. police report that you know was filed multiple days afterwards, which I can almost promise is a combination of both troopers' reports together. And so you know, it, how easy would it be for the trooper to be like, "Yeah, he said stop him over here," but before that, he walked up to me. And it's uh, there's so many just things you'd that want could clarified. Change. You'd want clarified before putting a pen to paper on a motion. Oh God, yeah. Um, um, the other the other thing with the case is. This case is different because he was not in the car. So you know, normally with a Miranda violation, you lose the statements they make or the the fruit from that statement. So you know, if I, if I don't Mirandize you and I'm supposed to, maybe I, I lose the admission that you had drank eight beers at this bar before I pulled you over. But I still smelled the odor. I still saw your red and bloodshot eyes. I still saw you stumbling around. That's not going to affect the case it's going to affect it a little bit, but it's not going to affect the meat of the case. You're still going to have plenty. Yeah, you're in the car. They just got pulled over. You're going to have plenty there to keep going as a, as a police officer, as Absolutely. a prosecutor. This is different. I think, you know. It's so different. It's so different. It's so important. And it just, it just, this case, watching this case unfold, is just, it's so many, you know, I don't do very many DUIs fatalities, but the issues are present in almost all my cases. Flipped over car, people walking out of a ditch. Hey, what's going on, you know, officer? At that point, I smelled alcohol, and I'm okay. Well, then they're leaving. So there's so many things affected by this in such a grander scale, and it is a def unique case. I mean, the car not being registered to him, so many just crazy things, and his corpus lecti issues. Anytime you get to argue that, it's very interesting. And let's clear up. I want to clear up one misconception while we're talking about Miranda, since this is, I guess, the issue at the end of the podcast. Is true or false? I put you in handcuffs, throw you in my squad car. I have to read you Miranda. Absolutely not. And the best DUI officers will do that and let you just start talking because you'll sink your own ship. So, Did they say uh, record on that, that laptop camera and oh. just let it go? And you know that they, they just be like, you know, you'll see the laptop cameras that the officers say, hey, it's going to be all right. Hey, you don't got to worry too much about this. They'll say statements like that and those aren't questions. People just start talking. I think officers, particularly in Indianapolis, a long time learned People will sink their own ships. You don't got to be mean. You can actually be nice, fatherly, act like you're a supporter, and people will just start talking, and all that comes in. I've had off when I was a prosecutor, I had officers get half hot at other officers for being rude to defendants on the scene. Is they'd show up to do to take a you know suspected drunk driver, take over the investigation, and you know the officer there's being a jerk, and it's not them playing good cop bad cop. The guy's just being a jerk, and they'd get pissed. Like why are you, why are you clamming up my suspect? I want him to talk. Be be nice to him, because you know they don't want you to think you're out to get him. They they want they want him to think 
because it's what they're doing most of the time is that they're just doing their job. And hey, sorry that you were drunk driving. I just got to do what I got to do. You know, they want you to talk. Which is always, I plead the fifth. <laughs> I plead the fifth and be quiet. You can be the nicest officer in town. You're not, sorry, officer friendly, not telling you anything. Um, yeah, so, so you don't have to be read Miranda when you're locked up and put in the back of the car. Do you have to be read Miranda when you get processed into jail? No, those are just perfunctory type statements, but, you know, and the people processing you typically aren't the arresting officer. <laughs> Name, weight, age, um... Not not things that you would get Mirandized for. Yeah. Um, that you have to be Mirandized when you're charged. All false. You have to be Mirandized, like you said earlier, when you're in custody, not free to leave, or a reasonable person would think they're not free to leave. You got a dozen officers with gun uh, officers with guns drawn around you. They may not say freeze, but you're probably going to stay still. And then you're being asked questions, and at least questions relevant to an investigation. Like a police officer walks by you down the road, how you doing? Are you okay? Are you cold? Can I get you a can I get you a cigarette? Whatever. Those aren't questions that are likely to lead to any kind of incriminating evidence. Any kind of incriminating evidence or you know statements. What I don't like though is when officers what really bugs me about this whole is when the officer takes an individual to a hospital because there's an accident and they linger outside the door and they overhear the statements made to a medical provider. And that just that really irks me because those statements do tend to find themselves coming in at evidence. Well, I didn't ask him. You know, they told me I plead the fifth earlier at the, at the accident. I took him to the hospital. I overheard him tell the doctor, yeah, I flipped the car after drinking all night. Final question. The Miranda warning that we all know from TV, the whole spiel, do the officers have to say that? I don't, I don't think they have to say the entire word for word, either right to man signs, you know, like a dragnet style. And most officers have it on a card. Yeah, that they, they do read card. it that way. And so most of them will just read right off that and... uh Every now and then, you find a card with mistakes. <laughs> so, any defense attorney listening to this, always ask to see those cards and always know what they have to read. Um, but, you know, they have to give the gist of it. And it's... Well, I mean, it could be as simple as, hey, um, I'm going to ask you questions. You don't have to talk to me if you don't want to. If you would rather talk to a lawyer first, that's cool. We'll get you one. That's that's Miranda. That's Miranda. <laughs> that's Miranda. And it's... I mean, and I've known officers that have done it in a very... I've uh, heard them describe it as a lullaby in a very sing-song way. Like... Hey, I got to read you this thing. We all know it from TV. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you can say can and will be used against you in a court of law. And they just read it, they read it in a soothing way because they don't <laughs> want to seem like it's dragnet. They don't want to seem accusatory. You know, don't want to seem bad cop aggressive. And so... More flies with honey than vinegar, man. Absolutely. All right, that's pretty much all the time we have for today. Mark, if anybody wants to get a hold of you to talk about any criminal case, how can they get a hold of you? Ah, uh, you can Google my name with Mark with the C, Mark Lopez. Give me a call, 317-632-3642, or shoot me an email, mark at marklopezlaw.com. All right, thank you, Mark, and we will talk again soon, I'm sure. Absolutely, man.